Sponsor CBT Nuggets is IT training for IT professionals and anyone looking to build IT skills. If you want to make fully operational your networking, cloud, security, automation, or DevOps battle station, visit cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. That's cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. Welcome to Heavy Networking. Our topic today, building your own network automation engine. And our guest is Ivan Del Rio. Ivan, uh, this is the first time you've been on Heavy Networking. So if you would, in just a few sentences, would you introduce yourself to the audience? Hi, Ethan. How's everything? Yeah, so I work for UQ Communications and my role is I'm a network engineer. And also, I'll say automation engineer slash sysadmin role. And we manage... Um, like an IPMP LS network. So we write a lot of the automation tools that we use on a daily basis. Yeah, this is kind of a follow-up conversation, Ivan, that you and I are having because your coworker, Steve Paluca, was on an earlier heavy networking episode where we were talking about some of the things he was doing with uh, with pipelines, which is, uh, I, I guess, a little part of this conversation, not the major thing we're going to focus on today. Uh, so if you are listening to this show we're recording with Ivan and hadn't heard the recording with Steve, that might give you a little more insight into some of what we're going to be covering today, dear listener. So Ivan, um, uh, you said you presented yourself as network engineer, but as, as I'd been talking to Steve, um, he kind of presented you as a developer that built this whole thing. So give us some more detail. Are you a network engineer? Are you a developer? What is your role exactly? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think I'm a little bit of both. I mean, my area of expertise leans towards um, network engineering. Although I have some knowledge, you know, writing uh, code. I mean, not at, up to the level of the software engineers, but good enough <laughs> that helps, you know, to build tools that can help us. So you started as a network engineer that has morphed into doing some development work, but you still wouldn't consider yourself a software engineer. Is that fair? Yeah, that's a that's that's it. That's correct. All right. So we gotta understand your transition then. How do you go from configuring router switches, firewalls, load balancers, and so on? I'm I'm gonna assume you were kind of into that stuff. And then you ended up doing what were you doing? Shell scripts, Python? What what kind of development work were, had you been doing? So I started as a sysadmin. So before I was a network engineer, I was doing a lot of sysadmin stuff, you know, working with Linux. And we had to automate a lot of the task. We had a lot of re repetitive tasks that require you know, automation. So one point in my career, I got the opportunity to, to be an network engineer. When I was in Europe working for France Telecom, I took the opportunity and I felt in love with networking. And recently, I noticed like a tendency that a lot of this automation world that we already had on the sysadmin, it's moving towards you know, the network uh, world too. So I just connect that gap. That's what I've been doing. Natural fit for you. You came from Linux where you needed the automation and you just took that automation skill set that you had and translated it into, into networking. Is that what I'm hearing? Exactly. Yeah. That's what it is. So now that you're a network engineer who's getting more, you know, you're quite seriously involved with network automation. Has the automation part, like the tool that you've built that we're going to talk about here, is that your full-time thing? Or is it like split where you're doing kind of network engineering stuff on the one hand and working on the automation tool on the other? So it was kind of a hobby when I started. It became something else at the end. So I can say that it's not my main, I mean, I'm not putting five, six hours every day on the tool, but I'm putting a lot of time. Yeah, definitely. It's, it become very critical in our company. So, I mean, that was not the idea at the beginning. I just want to automate some of the processes that we had, but then everybody's using it right now and it's helping us to automate a lot of the repetitive tasks that we have. So I would say 40, maybe 60, 40. So 60 being the network side of things. Okay. So not, not quite 50, 50, but yeah. So then 40% of your time spent on building the tool because it's that critical to the functioning of the organization at this point. I, I like the way you put it. It started out as a hobby. Now it is not a hobby. It is uh, it's mm -hmm. critical to the org. And the rest of your time is traditional network engineering. So what does that mean? Is that like you're standing up switches and routers, provisioning stuff for, for customers, that sort of work? Yeah, so it goes from I'm leading several projects, internal projects. Also, I'm doing, you know, I'm on call. Within a working department, 
So I'm like a tier two, tier three. And also I'm doing a lot of the configurations and some of the service designs as well. So my role, it's, it leans towards the, you know, the network engineering side, but I guess that knowledge helped me to develop the tool too. That was the big reason I asked that question, because I was assuming the fact that you're right up to your elbows working on the network itself and configuring network devices means that you had the knowledge to know what the tool needed. Uh, so it's really your own knowledge that's driving a lot of this. Is it, well, is it a team discussion at this point where everyone kind of gets together and says, hey, uh, Ivan, we want to add you know, this thing to the tool next? Yeah, it's it's not an Ivan tool anymore. It's <laughs> yeah, it used to be like that, but now it's like I said because a lot of different people, different departments are using the tool. Uh, you need like a consensus when we talk about adding new features or uh, interaction between tools, like the one that Steve was talking about. You know, the base configuration. So it's not about me anymore saying you know we're going to lean this towards this direction. We're going to do this or the other thing. So. It's it's a team, you know, discussion. Yeah. Are you the only one that actually works on the tool though? When uh, when a decision's made about what to do next, is it just you writing code? At the moment, yes, I'm the only one. Before we had uh, another team member that was helping. His name was Kurt. Was helping optimizing the code of the A tool, but now he had to move to a different state, so he's not uh, working for the queue anymore. Hmm. All right, so you're on the network engineering team. You're building this tool. It takes up, let's say, about 40% of your time. What is the tool now? Because it's got to be quite extensive for it to involve uh, this much energy on your part. What, what is this monster that you've built? Yeah, that's a good you know, description. It's, it's a monster right now. So the tool, it's helping us with automation. One of the critical steps in our company, it's when we build devices. Like new customers, you know, they they get a service from DQ and they want a, a new location with the new device. So we have to pre-stage that device. So for example, when we have to migrate like an end-of-life equipment to a new equipment or when we have to build replacements. So back then we had tools. We wrote like shell scripting and some Python tools where we, we using the CLI, we had to kind of like pre-stage these devices by hand, but these tools, they were like disconnected from each other. So you have one tool for which the configuration or one tool for upgrade the Junos to a specific version, but there was not a set of rules. So what the A tool, I, I call it A tool, stands for auto install tool. What the A tool is doing, it's connecting all these pieces together. And with, with the fancy GUI, just showing you the information, you know, what it's doing. So it's just, the A2 is kind of like a entity that it's controlling smaller entities and it's providing you on on a web GUI format what's going on. Is it an orchestration tool? Would that be a fair way to describe it? It's kind of, yeah. I mean, it's almost there, I guess. It was not designed with that idea, but now, because it's a multi-platform tool, so we have several different uh, Jumper devices like ACXs, SRXs, EXs, that they are supported. I would say that, yeah, it's leaning towards that direction right now. Yeah, it's kind of like an orchestration tool. The other tools that uh, a tool calls, are those commercial tools or other things that you've written? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. So you have, for example, the Juniper libraries. It uses under the hood um, PyEasy, the microframe uh, that Juniper provides to you know, their, their library for Python to uh, yep. that, that that is nicely mated to what the capabilities of the, the platform are it makes writing the code a lot easier. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful library, very easy to use. And then it's using Netconify too. It's another you know uh, library that you can use uh, from Juniper. From and what it's doing, it's it's kind of like you have a like a main entity. That it's when you create a new device, for example, and then you have small pieces like smaller entities. For example, when you zerize a device or when you upgrade uh, the Junos, or when you snapshot a device. So the main entity is capable of orchestrating, you know, the small ones, and they talk to each other using uh, my, my SQL 
as a kind of like a message queue. Now, you could have stitched all this together with some kind of a commercial solution. Juniper would have been delighted to sell you a number of different tools that can kind of unite uh, Juniper hardware infrastructure for sure. But you didn't go that route. You built the thing yourself. Why build it yourself and not go with a commercial solution, whether it's from Juniper or a bunch of third parties that would have been happy to uh, to help you here? I guess it did not fit our requirements. Because then it's it's pretty customized to what we need at DQE. That was the main reason. And I mean, I think that technically it's a viable solution, you know, like a commercial solution. It just need to... They got a lot of built-in stuff inside of the tool that maybe is not like wide knowledge for everybody. So honestly, I just like I say, it started as a hobby. So, <laughs> it started as a hobby. It grew into a monster, and now you're getting paid to uh, to work on it for much of your time during the week. Yeah, yeah, I, I love it. I mean, it's it's very nice because it's helping the team too. Hmm. It's, it's making things much easier too. The tool is written, all the code that you've been writing for a tool, that is Python, is that right? It has different languages. So you have the HTML portion, that is the web GUI. Then you have um, jQuery, also on the HTML, provides a little fancy widget. And then you have for the backend, you have PHP, Python, and a little bit of shell scripting too. It's, like I said, I love, a lot of everything. Well, it's I'm laughing because some of the, the the work that I've been doing with Python means Python is my my first choice. So whenever I have a new little challenge to solve, I'm trying to solve it in Python just to kind of limit the number of languages and and so on that I'm supporting. And I'm getting to that point where okay, there are things I need to put into a UI. Do, does will Python give me everything I need, either you know Django or Flask, or do I need to look outside of that and look at something else to to give me what I might want in a UI? And and I'm scared, man. If it ain't Python, I'm a little <laughs> I'm a little anxious. <laughs> I think the the issue is that we had already some scripts in place, and I, I tried to reuse some of the scripts. A lot of the scripts were in Pell and also shell scripting. Some, a few of them in Python. I guess maybe that was my mistake. So right now I'm trying to migrate everything to Python too. Just I don't. It's too too many complications. You know, we have too many languages. So I'm going to like you. I prefer Python. You have a huge community. You know, that you can use and somebody somewhere had a similar problem, if not the same. You know, so you can. You can look it up on internet. Yeah, I feel exactly the same way. There, there is a huge community. There's some fantastic podcasts out there that cover the Python ecosystem. There is lots of training you can get. There are more books than I can name that will help you get ramped up on Python very quickly. And then the number of libraries that are out there that can extend Python, that make certain things that are – there's not much value add if you learn how to program certain things at a detailed level, if you can just have a library that um, abstracts that com- bit of complexity away from you and just gives you simple commands and objects so you can uh, get at whatever the bits of data are that you're looking for, oh, you can you can get to a result fast. For me, it was also, it's easier to, the transition between um, Shellscape and Python. I mean, I guess transitioning from Shellscape to everything else, it's easier. With Shellscape, it's, a pain by itself, but I don't know. It, it was for me. It was more comfortable to do that change. It was more natural, I guess. It's the CLI, the shell script CLI. It sometimes is very tricky. Python is much better, definitely. It's an improvement. Now we're talking about Python, but a lot of folks are also doing development in the networking space in Go. Go GoLang comes up quite a bit. Uh, Rust seems to come up now and again for certain things. Have you messed with any of those others or see possible use cases for them? I have not. I think I have a lot of my plate is full right now. <laughs> but yeah, I definitely I like to explore uh, other options because I mean everything is evolving so fast. So I guess some limitations that I may have with Python right now, I may not encounter them with Go or Rust. So yeah, definitely I'm open to explore other languages. 
I, I haven't spent any time with Go or Rust or any of the other trendy things these days. They seem they seem interesting depending on, on what scale you're working at, depending on how async process what kind of async processing you might need. They maybe have some advantages or disadvantages uh, over Python, and they're intriguing from that sense. But they also seem to be solving more complex problems than I really need to solve with. Uh, or with what I can solve at Python very easily. So Python for me has been working well enough that I don't have like, oh, I really can't figure it out when Python, I'm going to have to find a different language to solve the problem. I just haven't run into that yet with Python. Yeah, I haven't had that problem either. Although it's running, I haven't seen a tool like this. And I guess that was another reason for me to start working. I haven't seen something similar in the market. And I guess, I guess maybe it's because we have a different... Uh, as a customer, we have different requirements. I don't know. Now, help me visualize what I would see if I'm a network engineer consuming a tool. Is it a web interface that I'm interacting with? Yeah, that's correct. So, first thing you're going to see, it's like a framework. It's using data tables from jQuery. So, it's organized information in rows. On each row, you're going to see every device that you're connecting to the rack. So, it's capable of uh, auto-discover devices. And it just automatically brings them on the screen for you. Auto-discovering if it's a brand new device that's never seen the network before? Because I I think I remember that was one of the use cases for Atool, right? Bringing new devices online? Yeah. So it's it's not part of the network. It's it's the rack by itself. So these devices, these out-of-the-boxes devices, they are not yet connected to the network. They have like whatever configuration comes by default. So it doesn't know how to speak. And in our case, in PLS, that's the network that we use, and no SPF for management. So we use serial, um, uh, the serial uh, protocol to communicate with the boxes, and we use mm-hmm. the console port directly. Because we, at the point when we connect that new device into the A2 rack, the device doesn't know anything about our network. N- nothing at all. You're not even using a management port with DHCP. You're just using straight up serial as your out of band network. Yeah, so we have the management port for when we want to upgrade the Junos. So when you, the first thing that happens when you plug in like a new device, a new ACX, so into the A2 rack, it detects the new device, and then it pulls information out of the device. It tells you, okay, so I'm on ACX 5K, for example, and I have I'm DC or AC, and this is the Junos that I'm running right now. And with that information, then. What happens is the A2 creates like a like a temporary load configuration that includes information about how to reach via layer three of the device. That's when we can start, you know, configuring the device or upgrading the device to match, you know, the specific configuration and also Junos that we need for that specific uh, ACX. Going back to the show that I recorded with Steve, your coworker, that code and configuration is known because it lives in a repository uh, where there's bits of code that all live in there that depending on what the device is, like you were just giving an example of an ACX 5K, uh, the tool can figure out from that what the device is and therefore what the configuration encoded is that it needs. So sometimes, you know, (laughs) yeah. Most of the times what happens is I mean, you're going to have a human uh, operator that's going to say, okay, I need to, for example, this ACX 5K is going to go to this specific customer at this specific location. And every uh, ring, edge ring, they have different uh, settings, gear settings or um, different, you know, BFD settings for SPF or whatever. So when the person who is running the tool and is going to create or is going to build a new device, it chooses a profile for that specific customer. So it says, okay, so you're an ACX that you're going to go to this ring. So this is the profile I'm going to use. And that profile has a set of instructions that it tells the device what kind of BFD is going to use, what kind of Junos is going to use, what's the management IP that we're going to use, and so on. How much of that bit of data, the, the Junos version and the management IP and stuff, do I, as the network engineer using the tool, have to tell the tool, fill, like fill in the blanks, and how much of that is pulled from like a, like a DSIM or an IPM system? Yeah, so it's it's automatic. So 
is it's based the tool uses profiles because at one point I realized, oh boy, there is too many devices, too many configurations. This is getting out of control. So I create what I call this profile approach, where you create a specific profile for a specific customer or specific uh, ring, and you say, okay, I want to create this device with this profile. And then that profile already has all that information. It's like a set of instructions already, mm-hmm. but it's going by sequence. And then it knows that because it's an ACX 5K, it needs to zeroize the device, it needs to use these specific units because this device is going to get deployed in that specific ring. So it's fairly automatic. Not fully automatic, but you don't have to specify the, the Junos. Although you can do that if you want to. That's an option that you can override the default profile and say, I want this specific Junos version for this device. So when I think about standing up devices for the first time, I think of that as undifferentiated heavy lifting. That is, it's important, it's got to get done, but it's just got to get done. There's no value sitting there as a network engineer banging away at this, filling in all the blanks yourself, trying and picking things off of spreadsheets. You want that automated, if at all possible. Going back to a data center build I did some years back, we were moving lots of switches into the new data center. And the assembly line wasn't this automated pipeline process. It was me and a couple other folks would sit there with box cutters, get a switch out of the box, sit it down on a table, plug into the serial port, and then munge up some text file and notepad to be what this one should probably be. Hopefully we get it all right and copy paste correctly and put it in, which was, I mean, we got it down to a fairly efficient process that kind of worked, but so error prone if you copy and paste something wrong, you really want that automated. And so what you're describing in my mind is like exactly what I want as a network engineer. I just want the thing online, correct, Uh, with a proper configuration and not me scratching my head really hard trying to figure it out because that's not where the magic is as far as I'm concerned as a network engineer. We've been there too and we've been doing things by hand and uh, so we we felt that pain too. It was very easy to make mistakes too. So I have an example. For example, uh, we have uh, one of our customers, we had to migrate the entire backhaul network from one specific uh, platform to a newer one and the A2 was already uh, up and running. So it took only one person to migrate entire rings. And we usually have between 16 and 20 devices per ring. So I think it was like less than one hour because the tool is multitasking. So you decide, okay, I want to create these 20 devices at the same time. And as long as you have enough uh, console ports on your console server, the tool is going to handle all the... Um, Installs at the same time. So you don't need like three or four people working on, on building the new devices. You just choose one people and then you let the tool handle everything for you because the tool is monitoring every step hmm. away. And then it tells you when it's a problem, it fails or if it doesn't fail, you know, it continues with the next step. For example, starts with zeroizing the device to make sure that you don't have any residual configuration that may affect, you know, where you're going to try to push. And then it upgrades the Junos to whatever version you need to run on that specific ring. And then it snapshots the ring. You have ACXs that they have dual root partition, for example. You have to snapshot the device, or you have SRX that you need uh, rescue configs. You rescue the configuration for you too. And that's already you know part of that profile that you, you choose when you, you build a device. We've been talking about using a tool, um, your, your internal tool here, as uh, something for provisioning new devices. Is that primarily what it does, or are there other things that it does as well? Yeah, it also works on replacement. So we use Oxidize to you know, dump all the configurations into the repo. And then this tool is capable of talking to the repo. It's capable of pulling configurations. And if one day, for example, one of the devices dies because of a, I don't know, a power problem or somebody spilled water on, on the equipment or like a short circuit, mm-hmm. you can go to the A2 and you can s- specify, I want to build a replacement for that specific device. And again, you have a specific profile for replacement that is going to go through all the steps. So it's going to delete the residual configurations. It's going to uh, push the, the back configuration from the repo. And then it's going to snapshot the device or it's going to rescue the device, depending on the platform. So yeah, there is a third option, too, that we call the migration option, 
that allows you to uh, dynamically create configurations between different platforms too. Mm-hmm. So I say you have three main actions that you can do with DA tool. It's you can build new devices for new customers. You can make replacements or you can migrate uh, between platforms and everything it's between Juniper devices. This device that was an ACX is now going to be an MX, meaning some of the configuration between the two will be different configuration in some some ways. And so you need to translate from the old profile to the new? Yeah, that's correct. So it's it's not working between MXs. It's usually on the Edge device. The Edge tool, it's targeting the, the Edge layer. So, But for example, you have different ACXs that they have a different port configuration. So the previous ports, they're not going to work with the newer devices. So it will handle all that scenario. Gotcha. So it's capable of understanding you know, what you had. It uses what I call dynamic profiles. So And it has like a matrix of different options and it's choosing. When you're moving configuration from an older device to a newer one, from a different device because of a, they have a different port configuration, the tool is capable of see that and readjust uh, the statements for the for the new web platform. And that reminds me again of the show I recorded with Steve earlier, how he described uh, a lot of that process working. Now, Ivan, this tool, as you've said, grew over time. You started out kind of working it on your spare time, sort of the mad scientist approach, and then it turned into what it's turned into. Now, if you knew... Back at the start, when you were just kind of working on this as a hobby, uh, and if you knew back then what you know now, would you have structured this project, this code differently? Definitely, yeah. Number one, I will do it from scratch. I mean, reusing all other people's code, it's it's very challenging sometimes. So, and when it's shell scripting code, it's even more challenging. I mean, I spend a lot of hours troubleshooting really weird things happening with shell scripting. So I will try it from scratch. So from scratch, as in you would write all the code yourself from scratch, as opposed to using so much of other people's open source stuff. Uh, no, that part I will continue using it. But some of the so my my when I first started with this tool, I reused some of the scripts that we already had. Very very nice scripts, very useful scripts too. But they they did not fit my idea of the A tool. So. The thing is, I created the tool around these scripts, and then when the tool was growing, I realized there were some bottlenecks because of these scripts. So I had to redo. At the same time that I had the tool up and running, I had to some kind migrate it to a different tool. So it's kind of weird because I started one way, and then I had to move the building of the tool a different way because. Uh, the base, I think the foundation of the A2 was based on, on the scripts and that made it more complicated for me. So I think that's the number one. And also uh, monolithic versus modular design. So before there was like a tool, like a, sorry, like a script to rule them all. So that script was the one taking care of everything. It became very challenging to troubleshoot things. So I decided to create like different entities. So for example, when you zero eyes a device, there is a, a script that is called zero eyes. And the main entity, the one that it's building the device, it's talking with that zero eyes entity. So it's delegating all the job. So it's much easier to troubleshoot. It's much easier to add new features to the zero eyes if, if I have to. Or for example, the Juno's upgrades, same thing. So I ended up divide and conquer, you know, instead of just having everything on, on one. And I guess don't reinvent, uh, reinvent the wheel. That's the just reuse code from other people. I'm using, for example, uh, PyEasy, the micro framework from for Python. And I'm using the Conify. I've done. I've been doing copy and paste too from other people's software uh, code because they are very amazing libraries and code out there. So. Oh, I always start with copy and paste. I mean, no doubt. <laughs> there was, there was some API I needed to hit, and I started with the example code right there so I could get a result out of it. And then I went back through it line by line going, all right, what the heck just happened? Uh, sometimes the yeah. way the libraries are structured, they're a little obtuse to it's not immediately obvious what's going on. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm right with you. And a lot, no matter how much I change it, a lot of times the code is only subtly changed by me to make it do what I need to do. 
And so it's never code that I necessarily wrote from scratch. I'm almost always at the starting point of what someone else figured out uh, to become my starting point. I guess the, at least for me, my, my problem was when I created the tool, I had an idea, but I was not able to fully accomplish that idea because of the way the, the scripts that we had already in place, they were working differently. And I was working on some of that scripts too. So, but I guess the tool was growing and I realized, you know, that there were some flaws. I guess it's like everything. You don't design like a tool that it's kind of a hobby you know, to grow easily. And, you know, you don't expect that a lot of people are going to use it and, you know, you're going to have a lot of uh, parallel, you know, processes running at the same time. So at least I, I did not account for that at the beginning. So that was my, my big mistake. So while the tool was growing, I had to modify and adapt it to my new idea of how I wanted the tool to be. So that was a little bit of a pain. Well, did you get to the point where the tool does everything you needed to do now? Or are you still kind of hamstrung by some of the choices you made earlier? Yeah, I was. Right now, it's I'm I'm very happy with the tool. So it's doing what I'm expecting for the tool to do. I mean, there's room for improvement all the time, but the way it's designed right now, it's very easy for me. So, for example, if we add a new rack, so it's super easy to just insert the new rack into the A tool. Or, for example, when we have to change configuration. Before we have like a static configuration for the for the platform, so you have an SRX and you have a static file. So every time that we had to change stuff, I had to go to that file by hand and change it, and that was not good. So what I ended up doing, I created like a kind of like a two configuration approach, a two file configuration approach, where you have what's the common commands and then the platform specific commands. Usually the common commands or statements are the ones that they dynamically change all the time, like changing, I don't know, the OSPF area or the, or the loopback address. So that's only one file that I change, and these changes, they propagate down to the platform files. So that was not like that at the beginning. Mm. But again, a little bit challenging to make it do the things you need it to do when you're constrained by having a system that people are using and kind of being stuck because the original vision, as you were saying, when it was a hobby, you didn't expect it to become what it became. And so you're, you're stuck with those choices you made initially. It makes it harder to make those changes going forward. Yeah, I guess it's difficult to, I didn't know what to spec. Honestly, I thought at the beginning, I thought, okay, it's going to be like a little tool for me. So I can just run it when I have, you know, to create new devices. But then we start growing as a company, start getting a lot of customers, a lot of new devices. And, you know, that was not a tool anymore. We pause today's podcast discussion for training talk with heavy networking sponsor, CBT Nuggets. I care about IT training because it's been a big part of my IT career since I started going all the way back to 95. I began my IT infrastructure journey learning Novell stuff. And over the years, Training's never stopped for me because sometimes I'm going for cert. Sometimes I just need to get a better handle on something new, but I am always learning something to deliver the best networks that I can. As you research your own training needs, consider CBT Nuggets. CBT Nuggets specializes in training for networking, cloud, and security. They cover other material too, but they have an especially huge library of training material for Cisco, AWS, Juniper, Linux, Microsoft, and VMware. Thousands of videos, thousands of hours of content, which, which is not meant to scare you. It's okay. You don't have to watch them all at once. Just know that what you need is there when you need it. For example, all of you that are getting into network automation now, CBT Nuggets offers Cisco DevNet Associate and DevNet Professional Training. I have been reviewing the DevNet Blueprint material from Cisco. I can tell you, you are going to want training to get through these programs and make the most of them. DevNet material, it's not like learning a new routing protocol. It's learning how to manage infrastructure as code. And if you're a traditional ops person, that's really what I am. It's a whole new way of thinking. There's so much more than DevNet training there at CBT Nuggets. I've spent some time with the interface, digging through the catalog. It's easy to navigate. I sampled several videos. The audio and the video quality are excellent, and the instructors are easy to understand. They are personal, and they are engaging. They are not formal and boring, and some, some of them even wear a cowboy hat. Besides the training itself, there is a great support system to help you get a handle on the material with virtual labs and accountability 
coaching. Now is a great time to sign up for CBT Nuggets. Visit cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking to take advantage of their seven days free trial offer. Try it for a week. See if you like it. Commit if you do. Cancel if you don't. Seems fair. cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking for seven days free. That's cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. And now back to the podcast I so rudely interrupted. Okay. Okay. So this, this actually brings up a really good point. So you, we kind of understand here how, how a tool grew for you in, in your company's context. So let's say uh, I'm a, I'm a different company and uh, I'm thinking about building a tool like this based on the lessons you've learned. Are there certain design principles, design considerations you, you'd warn them to get right? Like you mentioned parallelism becoming a challenge for you at some point. And I don't know, I'm imagining things like uh, trying to deal with the correct sources of truth and what the UI should be and maybe the security model. I don't know. Do you have any advice for people that are just getting started with building a tool like this? Yeah, definitely. I think that the the number one is the, at least for us, the multi-platform challenges. So every platform behaves differently. So you need to do a lot of work understanding, you know, like uh, what implies to upgrade a, you know, Juno's on a 5K versus uh, to an SRX. And another thing too, and this is how I approach this tool because I didn't tell you, but there are a lot of moving parts here because you have, you know, the application server, but also you have the uh, the console server that is the one that it's translating from TCP to serial. And then you have the, the devices connected to, to the console server. And then on top of that, we have a cradle point that is providing LTE connectivity. So these racks, they are isolated from our network. We use an IPsec tunnel. So we can deploy a rack everywhere. Just need you know the rack and the power. We need the curl point and the black box. And then we create that tunnel in between the curl point and the application server. Like I say, you have a lot of moving parts here. And what I try to do, I try to hide some of that complexity. So my advice is, number one, monitor really well all the different pieces because when you have all these moving parts, it's very easy you know, to have an issue, like a connectivity issue, for example. For example, we have the SSH tunnels between the application server and the console server, the black boxes. And we these tunnels, they go through a cradle point, through you know LTE connection. So you need to account for uh, keep alive. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because the when you when you said the cradle point, I was like, wait a minute, because my brain was thinking somehow this was in like a, an isolated data center or a few different data centers that you folks manage. But actually, now that I think back on the conversation, you said edge stuff. So you've got things that are rolled out that the only way you can get to them initially is over that cradle point LTE connection. Is that true? Yeah, it's it works uh, both ways. So you have the, the cradle point but also you can connect it. So for example, we have racks inside of the data centers and we have layer two connections. So we get rid of the, of the cruel point, but some locations, you know, that we may not own or it's somebody else's data center and we don't have an option to run connectivity, our own connectivity. We use these cradle point solutions hmm. and we, we use internet. For example, uh, we have different locations where I mean, it depends on the data center requirements, and we may sometimes we may not have access, you know, the way we have on our own data centers. So we just create these tunnels, and we use, you know, the LTE connectivity. It's the same way in both architectures; they both coexist at the same time with the tool. So the tool can support, you know, both types of connectivities. But again, your big point is for folks that are getting ready to build a system like this, understand how you're actually connecting to your remote devices and make sure you're monitoring all of your links and such along the way so that you, if you can't yeah. connect to something out there, you know what's wrong. So I guess since you have visited tunnels and you have, we also use um, what we call pseudo uh, terminals. And that's another, uh, when I was building the A tool, I tried to hide a lot of the complexity between the different portions of the of the code. So when the A tool talks to a blob box, it uses an entity ID. So for example, it talks to a specific rack in Harrisburg with a specific port ID. In order to accomplish that, because it's not that easy. I mean, you have a, 
it's it's tunnel. You have to go through internet some cases, and then you have you know the access to the console server. So what I did, I create what I call it's. I'm using Socket, the software from Linux. Very nice. So I create this slash step slash you know I don't know for example Harrisburg one that this pseudo terminal allows me to push all the changes directly into the devices. So for the A tool, he doesn't see you know the tunnels or he doesn't see a black box. He only sees a specific port and a specific device. And I just push configuration through that specific pseudo terminal. How do you handle how do you handle async IO needing to manage a bunch of devices at once? This is a good thing about networking devices, I guess. So a lot of the times you're delegating the task to the device. So for example, when you have to zeroize the device, you just send a command, you just wait. So there's not a lot of CPU cycles or like memory usage when you're running, let's say 15 devices at the same time. Because you're just waiting. You just launch the command and then you wait for the device to tell you, hey, I'm ready. You can go ahead and try whatever else you want. You need to try with me. So that simplifies a lot of the stuff, to be honest. That was one of my concerns, you know, scalability. And what happens if I have 20 people at the same time trying to build devices? It's going to break the entire thing. Somebody going to yell at me or something. But since a lot of the stuff, it's being delegated, uh, you have to worry about these things. You've just got Python scripts sitting there in a wait and see kind of mode or, or waiting for a response. I've sent the command. Now I'm waiting for some result to come back. And that might take 10 seconds or a minute or three minutes or something, just depending. And that and your your point is that's okay. Yeah, because all the heavy duty is happening on the device. I'm just telling the device, hey, please yeah. go ahead and upgrade yourself. Or, hey, you know, Snapchat yourself. But I think the key, you know, here, it's make sure that you monitor what you launch and the result. Again, because you have a lot of different moving parts. So if you you say, hey, go, and, go ahead and zeroize yourself, but then you don't monitor that process, that's when things can go wrong because you can propagate an error across the different steps. So I'll say another advice is, you know, if somebody's considering to build a similar tool is error control. It's critical. Every step on of the way you need to make sure that what you, I mean, whatever task you ask the device to perform, you know, it went, it went through with no problems. That is, you're validating that your result is what you think it is. You don't just, you're not just automating steps. You're also checking that each step completed in the way that you need for it to complete before moving on to the next thing. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, which, I mean, as a network engineer, we're supposed to be doing that anyway, right? You know, if you add a new... You stand up a new routed link. Well, you're going to make sure that the neighbor adjacency comes up. You're going to make sure that the routes converge in the way that you expected. And there's a whole laundry list of things that you would go through to validate that, yes, indeed, this thing is working as expected. But, okay, so confession time for me, Ivan. I am not uh, great about this part. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's very easy, especially if if, if if the result you get is almost always what you expect. It almost always just works. It's super easy to be lazy and not prove that the result you got back is the thing that you wanted. Uh, and it feels like, ah, oh, I got to spend time. I got to parse through the result and make sure it's right and build all these actions and possible responses about what to do next. And most of the time it just works. I'm going to move on to the next thing. Yeah. I mean, we've been there before and that, that's one of the reasons because I was very adamant about not having error control because I've seen you know, scenarios where you do something by hand and you think that it's okay, but when you have to deploy that device on, on the real life network, nothing is working. So I, I can tell you that I spend a lot of time. When I was designing the tool, I put a lot of time in error control and also on locks and debug options. When you bring a device, and again, this is not, we don't use zero touch, zero touch provisioning here, so we pre-stage devices in the house. Then you know the field techs grab these devices and then they go to the specific locations and then they they do hot cuts to insert you know the the new device into the ring. So it's critical that you don't have anything weird going on, you know, like OSPF, like having a different OSPF uh, type of area when you're pushing a new device, because you can create a, a routing loop and and then a little problem becomes a huge problem. So error control is super critical. Hmm. 
And yeah, it's super critical. That That is the exact way to put it. It is absolutely necessary. You've got to have it. Um, and in my mind, as I'm writing a script and when I have that moment of laziness, it's like, okay, I, I might skip it for the moment, but I know before this becomes an actual tool that we're going to use in the production environment, I've got to address this part. And it is a, it is a time-consuming thing. I want to ask you about sources of truth, Ivan. What do you use? Is there an IPAM or a DSIM or a comma-separated values file or a SQL database, something you're using where important things like, I don't know, VLAN numbers and IP blocks and stuff live? Yeah, so we have an IPAM that we use, and we have a, uh, we wrote a model in a class to interact with that IPAM to make sure that we don't mess up the APs. And that's, again, very important. That's, for example, we use on our devices, we use router links. So we use last 30 ones. So not having the right of reusing a slash 31 from another ring into that ring can create a lot of, you know, weird run loops, you know, isometric, I guess. So we use the the IPAM as a sort of truth for, for all the APs. And we have this, and that's the other reason because we have the automation, because the automation is in charge of marking that IP as user already. So you don't have a manual you know, intervention where people is they going to IPAM. I mean, you can you can do that if you want, but everything is happening, you know, automatically. So the tool goes, reserves IPs, goes back to you, and then you know nobody else can use that IP. I mean, they're going to see that somebody else is using the IP, so they should not be using the IP. So the tool next time that it has to reuse IPs is going to go again. It's going to look for new entries. It's going to avoid reusing all IPs. So I will say that's one of the yeah, sorts of tools. Also, we have the base configuration that um, Steve was talking about on the Git. Yes, all of the different uh, chunks of code that are applicable to different models and so on that the, the configuration automatically ends up getting built based on that matrix of, I don't know, code snippets maybe is a, a way to describe it. So the A tool fits from that too. So Because in the end, what Steve was mentioning is you want to have only one place for everything. Because when you have too many different files and too many sources of truth, it gets complicated and it's very easy to make mistakes or add you know, commands that you don't want to add. So we try to feed everything from the same source. In this case, it's the repo. Oh man, I'm 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 rolling my eyes in sympathy right now. And this and it's the example that came to mind isn't even networking related. It's this little podcasting company that I that I run. When we have to change the title on a show, on an episode for whatever reason, we have to change it in several different places so that it's all consistent. There's something in Google Docs, there's something in Trello, there's uh, file names that get tweaked, and it's been driving me nuts. It's like, okay, there should be a source of truth for what the episode title is that makes it consistent everywhere it needs to be consistent. Yeah, I mean, we, <laughs> I guess we learn from, from our mistakes. Mm-hmm. Not everything was working on day one. And we had, that's one of the reasons because the A tool was born too. When you have a lot of different people using a lot of different automation tools, uh, it's extremely easy to add, you know, complexity to the process and as well to add some commands or maybe do not verify properly, you know, the, all the steps. So when you deploy that device, it just creates inconsistency in the network that maybe. I mean, if it's OSPF, it's pretty obvious, but if it's QoS, you know, you're going to get these weird behaviors that mm. nobody knows what's going on because the queues are not classifying properly or the or the schedulers are not, you know, prioritizing. You know, or, or not properly. uniform depending on what hardware is, is sitting there. Yeah. Yeah. So that's because you have only one place and, you know, few people can touch, you know, that source of truth. So, Steve, we've been talking about these design considerations for people that are you know, considering building this new. We've talked about sources of truth. We talked a bit about parallelism. Uh, are there any other big lessons, things that you advise people to make sure they think hard about and get right before they embark on their tool building journey? Yeah, I think the language that they're going to use. And like you just say at the beginning of, of this podcast, make sure that you choose one language that has a lot of, like a huge community behind I mean, it could be Python, it could be Go or Rust, but and just put all 
I'm, maybe it sounds weird, but put all the baskets, all the X, the X are in the same basket here, because you want to have everything using one language. When you have too many languages at the same time, it becomes really complex to troubleshoot things. So one of the advice, I would say, choose one of the big languages and rely on all these open source libraries, amazing libraries that you have online. All right. Uh, there are a few other questions that I want to ask you because I'm just curious about how you guys have done this internally since you've built this very custom system that is directly ap applicable to your processes. Uh, and that is, uh, one is templating. Do you have a templating system like Jinja2, let's say, that you use to generate reports, something like that? So we have kind of like a built-in templating. So everything is happening on the web GUI. Besides, I mean, you have the logs, but reporting it's, it's through the web. So when you launch a process, like a new install or like a replacement, you see real time what's happening on the web GUI. And it's telling you, hey, right now I'm zeroizing this device. So, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and upgrade, you know, to this specific Junos. We use this built-in template system that we built in the house for the, uh, for the profiles. Like I say, you have the action profiles where you can specify, I want to build a new device or I want to build a replacement or like a specific profile that includes all the actions that every customer needs in their configuration files, but we don't use any Jinja. But that's that's on the roadmap, yeah. Hmm. Until I like to go to something more standard. Uh, another question then is chat ops. Do you like Slack? I've written some scripts. It's not overly hard to get something uh, to get a Python script that's dumping output into a Slack channel, for example. So. Yeah, I was thinking about that, to be honest. We had a different approach to that. So we're working on what we call dynamic diagrams. That it's a tool that it reads the diagram from the network automatically. So instead of having like a static Visio file, for example, the tool goes to the um, uh, network, to that specific ring, for example, and it just draws the topology for you. And then real time, it gets information from what links are up, what links are down, or the device is up, down, or if there is any LSP that it's malfunctioning or whatever. So the integration that we want to do is through that tool. Uh, when there was a problem, you know, the tool will be able to tell, okay, this device is down, for example. So we will automatically communicate with the um, teams. In this case, we'll notify and we'll say, hey, I have this device down, and I'm going to build a replacement. It will talk to the A tool. It will create the replacement. That's that's not working right now. Hmm. It's in the so we, we thought about this still work. It's a lot of work to do because we're still working on the dynamic diagram. And also, it will be nice like having that little chatbot that you can you know talk and say I want to build this replacement. So I I guess to isolate a little bit of the complexity of because even if it's very kind of uh, isolated already, so the complexity it's already hidden in the profile when you build the replacement or when you build the new device. I like to go one step further and try to, like I say, create that natural conversation with the chatbot, maybe say, hey, can you build me a replacement for this specific customer at this specific location? So we haven't done yet though. But yeah, that's we've been thinking about this, definitely. And you that that's not just a neat party trick. I mean, if you build that, you're going to use that, yeah? Definitely, yeah. I guess the idea is you want to make sure that the tool reaches everybody. So if you, I mean, you have people that they have more knowledge than other people about networking, but you want to isolate that complexity. So that way the tool can reach everybody. So they don't have to call you at three o'clock in the morning if the device goes down. They can just go ahead and just build the tool. And that's what's happening right now. So, you know, the NOC department launches, you know, the processes without, you know, engaging, with, uh, engaging sorry, with the engineers, because the tool already kind of isolates that complexity. Just say, I want this device, I want this IP, and I'm gonna use this profile. Then everything else happens magically. <laughs> yeah, Ivan magic, yeah, real magic. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of years, yeah, working in the... Uh, Ivan, when I was uh, chatting with Steve, the topic of a message queue came up, uh, pub sub, that kind of stuff. And in our notes here, you would actually put a note in to talk about that a bit, modular versus mon monolithic uh, approach for executing these tasks and uh, and using a message queue. So can you can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, definitely. So 
I mean, we have active in queue, but I don't use it for the A2. So I use um, MySQL, well, in this case, MariaDB right now. And the, like I said, the approach is I have different pieces. So instead of having like a monolithic, you know, script that handles the entire process, you know, there is one main entity that talks to the other ones. Like one entity is for Juno's upgrades, the other entity is for um, zero-ize the device or to shut down the device. So the way these entities communicate with each other is through MariaDB. So there is a table that they use to you know, drop the messages and you know the main entity consumes these messages. Okay, so it's not okay. So just to be clear, it's not a message queue like RabbitMQ. That that was the point you were making earlier, where it's, it's PubSub. It's it's it is that model, but it's a model that's built on a plain old SQL uh, and not not so yeah. fancy as uh, as RabbitMQ as such. Yeah, it's not as powerful as RabbitMQ, ActiveMQ. It's just it's using the database kind of like a, a queue mechanism. It works well because I mean I have my same you know I can create events, consume events, and I can mark events, and I can keep track of these events. So if something goes south, I can go ahead and check. But it's it, not a you have activity. to build in polling. Is that the additional? Is that the trade off? Uh, yeah, that is you got to you got to look your scripts have to look at MariaDB at the SQL tables to see if there's some something out there to react to. That's correct. Yeah, it's it's not. And it, the, the tool is the one that talks to MariaDB and say, okay, is there anything new for me? And is there any message from this guy? Yes or no. So the tools are the ones responsible to go ahead and, and check for new updates. So I guess it's not a proactive approach. It's mm -hmm. not reactive. It's not the one, the message telling, hey, I have something for you. Go and check. It's more like, is there anything for me now? Can I check? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess that's one of the downsides. But... Everybody knows SQL. It's easy to write SQL queries. You don't need everything to be super instantaneous. It can it can happen like this and work fine and be easy to debug. And, and as you said, it works just fine. Yeah, I, I guess that's the main benefit because you're delegating a lot of the tasks to the devices. When you say, go ahead and upgrade your Junos to a specific version, you just need to wait. It's not like there is an urgency of doing it right now. And it's not going to happen right now. I mean, it takes forever to upgrade. I mean, not forever, right? It takes a little while to upgrade Junos on these devices. It may take 10, 15 minutes. So a lot of the times, you're just waiting. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> the good thing is you don't have somebody, you're not the one waiting. So you have a tool that it's waiting for you. And this tool is the one controlling all the messages and making sure that all the different steps, all the different complexities, they, they are being handled. It's the same thing. It's kind of based in human interaction. I think that's a good point too. So the way I build the A tool was based on how I do the, how I build the devices. So I needed to to spend that time and learn, you know, how to do it by hand before I can automate it. Yes, that is a theme that has come up in almost every automation conversation we've had in the last uh, couple of years, that if you don't know the workflow yourself really well, you can't automate it. You've got to understand it at a detailed level, or it's very hard to write the code and the error handling and the sanity checks along the way and so on that are required to make sure that the process goes smoothly. Yeah, I think that's, that's key. Well, at least it was key for me, definitely, because I spent a lot of time doing it by hand. So I was able to see the flaws in the process and I was able to see where I can improve it and how I improve it. And then I just made a tool that it's doing all the stuff that somebody that in that case me or other you know engineers were doing by hand. But it's it's a tool doing it for you, just monitoring all the steps along the path. I've I got a I got a parting thought question here for you. Um that is that goes back to our earlier part of the conversation about buying an off-the-shelf solution, a commercial network automation tool, versus building it yourself. Um, how would you how would you guide an organization that's thinking about network automation from that standpoint? When would you say it's a good idea to do it yourself, and when would you say buy a commercial solution and tailor it to your needs? So. Uh... This is funny. So one of my managers told me when I was when I started as a sysadmin, he told me like two things that resonated in my head. One is, Ivan, you know, do not reinvent the wheel. Somebody did something similar. Somebody had the same problem that you had. And the other one is, if you have to do the same task more than once, you need to automate it. 
So that being said, so if somebody's gonna, or if you guys, or somebody's thinking to start this endeavor, I say the key number one is make sure that you get feedback from the people that are gonna use it. Because you can create your own tool and then nobody's gonna use it, but it's not gonna really fit, you know, the needs of the company. So you need to make sure that you're getting feedback from whoever, all the departments, even if they don't have like a technical knowledge, because that's when you start to build something that is going to be used by a lot of people. So I think it's key that to get that feedback from whoever. At the same time, they're going to tell you, you know, future requests, what things that can be improved here or what things can cannot be. Well, I mean, there's room for improvement here or how you change this and that. So I think that's the, the number one. And the number two, like we were talking about before, make sure that if you're going to automate something, you know really well how to do it by hand. <laughs> yep. Yeah, you absolutely have to know that a lot. It's funny. I there was a this goes back uh, a couple of years when Interop the Interop conference was still a thing, but I was preparing a presentation for that conference and it came up for something as straightforward and fundamental to networking as creating a VLAN. I came up with something like 23 steps or something that are required to do it and do all the sanity checks and stuff, which took some people aback and then they were walking through the process I defined and going, "Yeah, it really is." that many steps to uh, to create a VLAN, depending on how, depending on the complexity of your environment to some degree, which can really change things. It's building a VLAN on one switch is one thing. Building a VLAN on a large multi-switch network that has firewalls and VPN tunnels and remote workers that might need to access that new VLAN is a whole different thing. And so therefore you really have to understand all of that stuff. Well, which we're beating it to death, uh, Ivan, I'm afraid. I think I think people get the point there on knowing your process and your workflow really well. I mean, it makes, for me, it made a huge difference. Mm. Like you said, automating something that you haven't done, like maybe you've done it once or twice, it's a recipe for disaster. Mm. So if people know their workflows well and they have some uh, competency with with programming and development. Would you recommend that they go ahead and try to build their own automation engine, or or would you say, when would you say it's better for them to build their own again versus uh, buy a commercial off the shelf automation tool? I guess in my case, it was because we have. I guess every company has different needs. So when you create like out of the shelf, you know, automation tool. I guess it's kind of like very standard. So fitting that tool to what you have or what you need may require some extra, you know, development, and that may take time. So if you can build that in-house, uh, and if you build the pieces already to support that needs that we have in our case, it's easier. I mean, again, it depends on, you know, because like I say, there is a, lot of investment when you're building a tool like this or any automation in general i mean before it works you need to spend hours and hours to testing you know the tool and but i guess the outcome when you see that it works and you see that people are happy <laughs> to use it because they don't have to to worry about you know all the ins and outs happening when you're building a device or replacement or migrating a device i don't know that for me personally makes me super happy and it improved the <laughs> company's performance too because you don't need three people building replacements or new devices any, anymore you just have one person running the the tool and you let it handle so i think i will say that yeah benefit it's more beneficial to write the tool for, mm. in our case but i don't know i guess it depends on each company well you just said the classic it depends yeah of course yes exactly it it depends all depending on your situation but you made another really key point here that I think some people overlook, especially uh, some managers that maybe aren't hands-on with engineering and tools all the time. You might think, if I buy a commercial automation solution, we're going to have this thing up and running in a week, and it's going to be great, and we can just, we're going to spend the money on the tool, and that's going to save us all this development time. No, it isn't, because your net, your network is different from Ivan's network, which is different from my network. And to make that commercial off-the-shelf automation tool work for you, yeah, you'll get some quick wins. But to fully implement that tool and have it become part of the fabric of your operations, that will require a lot of time and customization and adapting the tool to work with your workflow and so on. So don't exactly. think it's this, it's this one or the other. 
I build it myself, it's going to take forever. It's going to be slow. Well, no, not necessarily. Uh, don't you know? It would be a mistake to think that just buying that commercial tool is going to be, you know, super fast um, uh, path to automation success. It just, it just isn't. Yeah, you have to customize it at one point. I mean, it's difficult to sell one tool that is going to fit, you know, everybody's needs. And I guess that's where you have to put all the attention. It's going to benefit my company or myself. You know, if you know we have a third-party company that's going to do all the software you know for us how long it's going to take for them so i guess it depends like i say every company has different needs ivan thank you for your time today this has been a fantastic conversation uh are you active on the internet on the socials twitter anywhere that people can find you or follow you so i'm i have my linkedin account honestly mm-hmm. i'm not super active on social media but yeah I have my ivan ivan del rio on linkedin and i have my email too ivan at delriof.net so if somebody wants to send me something or they have questions about, you know, automation, how to start the journey of running a tool like this, definitely I'm more than happy to to help them. Excellent. Again, thank you so much for your time. Now, Ivan and I, as we were chatting, referred to this conversation we had with Steve Paluca. If you want to listen to that show to get to fill in some of the blanks here that uh, that maybe were left in, in Ivan's and mine conversation. That is Heavy Networking Episode 571, Network Automation Workflows with Jenkins. We talk a good bit about pipelines. We talk more about how the configuration snippets are built in some detail, give you even more to think about beyond what the conversation Ivan and I had today. Again, that was Heavy Networking 571. It's in the packetbushers.net RSS feed, or just go to the website packetpushers.net and you can find it there. Thanks for listening. Uh, you can find this in all of our shows. Again, packetpushers.net. Uh, call out to the community here for community bloggers. Maybe you don't want to start a blog your own because that sounds like a pain in the butt. Yeah, you can blog at packetpushers.net. Just shoot us an email, send us a message on Twitter uh, at packetpushers and let us know you're interested in writing on our community blog and we'll get you set up. You can follow us again on Twitter at packetpushers. We're on LinkedIn as well. Last but not least, Remember that too much networking would never be enough.